Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Marcus and Eric Learn Stuff from Smarter People. I'm Eric Newman. I'm Marcus Monroe. And we are joined by not only a close friend of mine, but a school psychologist, Mark Gerber. So uh, hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, guys. I just want to make sure everyone knows I'm, I'm not the school psychologist that helped Eric at one point during his academic career. That's not how we met. Clearly, nobody helped me. <laughs> well, let me ask you this, Mark. What, a- what school and like what ages are the, are the kids? So I am a school psychologist in East Harlem for a couple schools, and it's uh, kindergarten through eighth grade. So it's a big, pretty big range. Wow. I also have a private practice where I do cognitive behavioral therapy with children and adults. And I also teach uh, neuropsychology and psychological testing at Brooklyn College. That's three things. Three jobs. Three jobs that are all pretty, you know, pretty full time. I teach three classes. I have a number of private clients. And then I have the full time day job in the school. I also do comedy full time ish, or I used to before COVID, although I know you guys aren't, we're not focused on that today. But I'm a, yeah, I'm a, pretty busy guy for someone that hasn't left the house in a year and a half. <laughs> What's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? So a psychiatrist can give you drugs where uh, I'm not going to steal Wilson McDermott's joke here, but you know, uh, I, I cannot, I, um, uh, psychiatrists go to medical school. They pre- prescribe medication. Oftentimes that's all they do. They, you see a, pres- a psychiatrist for medication, management and they'll prescribe you, you know, anti-anxiety medication, medication for depression, medication, you know, antipsychotic medication, whereas a psychologist is usually just treating people through talk therapy, which is what I do. It's it's a little bit let a little lower on the hierarchy, I guess, but it's different. Do you, do you think that psychiatrist do psychologists and psychiatrists often work in tandem? Yes, but not as close as they should. You know, like I, I have clients that have psychiatrists that receive medication. I don't really consult with the psychiatrist often unless there's a major issue, but they sh- ideally, yes, they should. What is your typical day like, Mark? Walk us through, you wake up, you get to work. What, what, is, your, what is like a typical day look like for you? Okay, I'm, I'm, I guess I'll just take you through uh, like currently, you know, s- since the, the pandemic, I've been remote with all of my jobs. So I've been home. I'm not going to make a hack joke about how, you know, I've been able to wear boxer shorts or sweatpants as long as I have a decent shirt up top. I'm, I'm not going to do that. Although I guess I just did. You just did, but you described, just disguised it as uh, I'm not going to. I know I'm not going to do it, but you know, I, I've, I've worn, I've worn jeans maybe three times since this whole thing started. It's, it's pretty amazing. But so my day, I have my day job first thing because it's a school. So that's 8 AM to like 3 PM. And uh, normally before the pandemic, I'm doing evaluations. So I'm testing kids, diagnosing them with learning disabilities with ADHD, autism, emotional disturbances, any of the childhood disabilities that you might be familiar with, diagnosing that and then coming up with a plan called an IEP, Individualized Education Plan, to provide them with services and supports. I don't provide any direct services for kids in my school job. I just evaluate the kids and then recommend services for them that other people, speech therapists, teachers, counselors provide those services. So for me, it's like, you know, I'll know the kid for a week or two, do my evaluation, meet the parents, make the recommendation, and, that, and that's that. Do parents ever get offended? My kid does not have ADHD. My kid doesn't need any help. Yes, absolutely. It happens all the time. You have, you have the two extremes. You have parents who are in denial, where they don't want to accept the diagnosis. 
And then you have the other end of the spectrum, you have parents who are demanding an IEP or demanding a diagnosis where the child doesn't really meet criteria for one. And often that happens in more affluent societies, right? Greenwich, Connecticut, you probably guys are probably familiar with it. One of the most affluent towns in, 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 the, in the country. They had the highest rate of children that were recommended for extra time on standardized tests. And you can imagine they probably do not have a disproportionate rate of children with disabilities there, but they're able to, through their, through their connections, through their uh, networks, get find psychologists or psychiatrists or neuropsychologists who will, will give those diagnoses to those kids who don't really meet the criteria for a disability, like ADHD, something that's kind of vague where you can make, you know, my, my joke I used to have, which is really true. When I, when I first got diagnosed with ADHD, it was a very involved process. I went to the doctor, I said, I have trouble focusing, you know, and he said, you have ADHD, here's the medication. So getting a, a prescription for, getting a diagnosis of ADHD can be as simple as that. You know, it can also be very involved where you get standardized testing and you get all kinds of, of tests. So yes, so I, I get both. I've had, I've had families where they, were just completely reluctant to any diagnosis of anything, whether it's an intellectual disability, which is what we used to call mental retardation, something that extreme, uh, autism, uh, ADHD, learning disabilities. It really depends, but yeah, you get you get pushback sometimes. So, so you yourself are diagnosed with ADHD? I had an ADHD diagnosis. Yeah, I was a high school dropout, so I went from GED to I say PhD because it sounds it sounds better, but it's actually a PsyD, a doctorate of psychology. Pretty much the same thing. They're both doctorates, but um, I was a high school dropout. I um, had severe ADHD and executive functioning issues. I was like Eric is now. Oh wow, that's <laughs> terrible. I had, yeah. Yeah, I know. It was it was rough. Uh, but Eric graduated high school, so I really shouldn't talk uh, smack about him, you know. Uh, he, managed, he managed to get through high school. I did not. I was just a mess. I, you know, I was the kid that just... So you got, you had to get your GED then? I got a GED. Yeah, I, I had a, 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 like this guy who was like a substitute teacher who took me under his wing. Uh, turned out later, I think he might have been into me because it turned out later that he kind of like, I saw him in the city years later and he was flirting with me and, did anything ever happen between you two? No, no, nothing happened. It was it was totally innocent at, at the time. It, and are you guys still together? No, no, no. We 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 are uh, we are not we're not together anymore. But it was it was a it was a whirlwind romance. You substituted him out for a permanent relationship. I did. I couldn't take him seriously because he was a substitute teacher. It was a casual fling. But uh, anyway, so this guy took me under his wing and he helped me get. He you know I shouldn't I really shouldn't mock him because he got me into the GED classes. So the GED is more involved than you think. You had to take classes before you could take the test and I did get in the 99.9th percentile it's one of the best GED scores on record I wish I still had my GED I don't I have no idea where it is or where the results are maybe I can find it online I digress a lot as you can tell that which is another sign of executive functioning and issues in ADHD what um okay so you were talking about your day so you know you 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 wake up at what so walk us through quickly so uh now that it's all remote i wake up like you know three minutes before i have to be at work the, the commute to my office is, is amazing it's right across the hall you know i just try not to wake up my girlfriend so I, I come into my office and i'm just online doing everything by zoom now so i have the day job and then i, I usually see one or two clients for private therapy through my private practice in, in the afternoon and then in the evenings, I'm teaching two nights a week. I'm teaching at Brooklyn College, teaching psychology to graduate students. So, I, and this is important for me to get out there because I feel like I haven't really spoken to Eric that much this pandemic. And, and it's important he knows I really was that busy, that it wasn't just me making excuses. How transferable are your skills as a school psychologist for to therapy? 
to uh, you know to private sessions um, and vice versa? Very good question, but not transferable at all because, like I said, with the school job, it's diagnostic. I'm diagnosing, and with the therapy job, I'm I'm providing the intervention. I'm doing cognitive behavioral therapy. And I didn't learn, and in my master's of school psychology, when I got my master's, I didn't learn therapy at all. And I was, you know, I had no th skills in therapy. All I learned was the testing. And then when I went for my doctorate in psychology, I was lucky enough to, to be in a program where they taught us cognitive behavioral therapy. Albert Ellis, who's one of the founders of cognitive behavioral therapy, his facility, the Ellis Institute, is affiliated with St. John's, where I got my doctorate. So they have cognitive behavioral therapists who are part of our program. And I, I got trained in graduate school. My first client was a 15 year old kid in high school who was actively suicidal. And when I say actively suicidal, I mean like he had a plan. He, he went up on his grandmother's roof. He would think about jumping in front of a subway car, you know? So he was like really had ideation and a plan. It was, it was pretty intense. And I said to my supervisor, like, obviously, you know, I've never done therapy before. You know, I'm not gonna, you're gonna take this or you're gonna give this to someone really exceptionally skilled, right? And they were like, no, this is your case. And my first time giving therapy was to a kid who was actively suicidal. I'm happy to say he did not commit suicide on my watch. I, I Hopefully he never did. In fact, he, he improved quite a bit over the course of that year. I'll take credit for some of that, but not all of it. Of course. Are you able to diagnose kids without a second opinion? Like if, you, if you're meeting with a kid and you, you think he's checking a lot of the boxes for ADHD, are you able to say, hey, this kid clearly ha has ADHD? Very good question. Technically, I can. I didn't know that for my first couple of years as a school psychologist that I could diagnose ADHD and that the di that diagnosis would hold up outside of schools and so on. But I can. I try not to, though. So when I'm making a medical diagnosis, which ADHD would actually fall under the umbrella of a medical diagnosis, I do prefer to have it corroborated by like a doctor or someone outside like a neuropsychologist or someone who's licensed. So that's another, another, another difference is that I am licensed in my private practice to make diagnoses, but in my school job, I'm not, it's, it's more of a certification thing. And I'm making what's called educational disability classifications, which are not the same as diagnoses. They typically don't hold up outside of school, but certain things like autism and ADHD, when you make that classification in the school, they do hold up outside. It's a little bit convoluted. Is it harder to diagnose or evaluate, you know, something over Zoom? Like, like for example, autism, if somebody just doesn't know where the camera is, they're not making eye contact with the camera in the right place. Do you just call them autistic? I don't, well, I don't just call them that off in an offhand way like that, you know, unless it's like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, Eric, you're getting canceled. I know, I definitely am, right? We can't keep that part in at all, right? No, we're keeping it in. You're just getting canceled. Just get canceled. It's not a, everybody's getting canceled these days. Don't worry about it. Just join the club. Yeah, I, I, I have not had to make any classifications over Zoom, thankfully. But I, I think it is being done. You know, people are doing evaluations on Zoom. Through my private practice, like I'll, through counseling, you know, I'll have to make diagnosis of like anxiety disorder and things like that. And with counseling, it's a little bit easier because counseling is, you know, look at us right now. We're talking. I see Marcus there on the couch chilling. This is basically, it could be a therapy session, me in my office, you there on the couch. In fact, our rooms look kind of similar, the, the brown tones and all that. We could almost be in the same room. Well, how much time do you have? We can turn this in. I can lay down we can turn this into like a, you know, whatever you want. Now I'm not trained. That's psychoanalysis. Now when you're going to lay down and just free associate, that's like the Freudian stuff. I don't do that. Nothing against it. You know, it's just not my specialty. I'm cognitive behavioral therapy. So I, I'll sit up. 
So I, and I, I, yeah, you could sit up for, for my type of therapy. You don't have to, you could lie down. I guess it wouldn't hurt. If I had the urge to leave my frame and go on top of Marcus on the couch, what would you diagnose me with? I, I would just give you guys couples therapy at that point, probably. Yeah, that'd be great. We probably need it at this point, actually, Eric. I think so, too. Here's a funny thing. Like when my wife and I, we go out, sometimes we'll meet people and my wife will that later that night, she'll come over, like we'll be talking and she'll be like, hey, I think that guy had Asperger's because he wasn't making eye contact and he wasn't really asking a lot of questions. And I'm like, he could have, you know, and we're like, he could be just like an introvert. Or something, but are you able to go out in social situations or diagnose like your friends or your girlfriend's friends with with things if like you see something that might not be like clicking with them? I can, yeah. I mean, I I think I'm pretty accurate. You know, like I'll see. You know, obviously, it, it's in no way official, and I'd no way disclose it or anything like that. But like, I can sure you're not going to text them. Hey, by the way, you have ADHD. Good, good hang last night. Yeah, and I've heard like you know, I remember um, a colleague of mine told me he had a, a kid come in for an autism diagnosis, and he just offhand said to the dad, you know, you have it too, you know, uh, which was crazy to me, you know, to, to tell the dad that. And I guess he did kind of see that the dad clearly was on the spectrum. But just, you know, for him, and he actually told the father that he believed that the father had it too, which I, I wouldn't do something like that, but I would be able to have a sense from an informal setting of that somebody probably would, you know, would be on the spectrum or probably, you know, maybe has ADHD. There's certain things like since, since, since autism is such a social disorder, it's much more easy to discern in a social situation. Obviously, you wouldn't be able to tell if someone has a learning disability from interacting with them necessarily, like, you know, unless you're, unless you're listening to them read. What would you look for if you're listening to them read? You know, it's hard to say, I guess, like having difficulties with phonetics and, and phonology, like the, the, being able to, to produce the sounds and letters and words, you know, just struggling with, with reading at the word level or that kind of thing. Poor reading, fluency, choppy reading, depending on the age, you know, like at little kids, you're listening to just, can they, do they know the letter sounds? Can they, do they know rhyming words? You know, can they give, can, do they know the, the letter groups like SH makes sh and, you know, CK makes k. So going back to uh, take, walking us through your day, how many students will you talk to in a, on a typical day on your Zoom? They didn't approve school psychologists doing Zoom evaluations. So this whole year, I have not interacted with a student directly. So when kids do need testing, I contract that out and they get private testing. And then I meet with the parent to go over the results and, and discuss the recommendations. But I haven't interacted with a student directly on Zoom. The only Zoom interactions I've had are my private clients. I see them all on Zoom. Some I see on the phone. I have a couple of 15-year-old kids that they just don't want to sit there and stare at me. So they'd rather just do it over the phone. And then my Brooklyn College classes are all on Zoom. So I'm seeing like, you know, sometimes between 16 and 30 students at a time on Zoom teaching an entire class. Can you take us through, I guess, like what you think is the typical path for someone who becomes a school psychologist? Do, do, do a lot of them break out into their own private practice and get a doctorate? And, or is that something that's sort of like only the most ambitious psychologists do? And If you only have a master's in school psychology, you're a school psychologist. And that's basically the only job that you qualify for within psychology anyway. Of course, you could always go work at H&M or become a server to supplement your income. But in terms of psychology with a master's in psych, that's all, a master's in school psych, that's all you can do. If you go on for your doctorate, even if it's a doctorate in school psychology, that allows you to then get licensed. And once you're a licensed psychologist, you can do a private practice, you can, you know, work in 
a hospital, you can really, then, then you have a lot more options that typically takes another like four years to get, to do your doctorate. And the doctorate is similar to most doctorates. So you have to do a dissertation and, you know, get through coursework and all that. It, it was a lot. I did my doctorate while working full-time while doing comedy full-time. You remember, you know, I, uh, not, but obviously your listeners don't, because they don't know me, but uh, Eric, you know, I was, we were good for, I remember. Marcus did not follow my comedy career, but he was following my psychology career so closely. It was very impressive. <laughs> I appreciate it. Remember when you bombed for your school principal? Oh my God. Yeah. That was, that was really awful. That was, you did a show at your school. No, my principal surprised me at a show and I, and I don't want to talk about the joke, Eric, please. I did a joke that was a killer joke. Well, no, it was not a good joke. It was not a good joke, but it was a joke that killed. So I opened with it a lot. I'd say it was like, it was like a 98 for a hundred, 98 out of a hundred shows that joke killed, but it was a touchy joke. It was a joke you wouldn't do anymore. Uh, at all. And even at the, at the time it was, you know, you things change so quickly, you know, in terms of what's acceptable anyway. So this joke was pretty acceptable at the time. I mean, I would do it on an alt show and it would be fine usually. So, but anyway, the, the my principal came quite progressive and, and some people from the school came and I opened with it and I asked Eric backstage, like, can I do this joke? And he's like, yeah, man. He's not even listening to me, obviously. You know, Eric, he didn't even listen to the question. He was waiting so he could ask me about his joke. So he just says, yeah, man, do it. Of course I go out there and I do it. And I see the disdain on everyone's face, including my principal. And then, you know, I come back with, with strong stuff. And you know how it is when you, op- when you do an opening joke that bombs, you know, I, I got them back a little but you know, maybe I got to a four or a five, up from a zero to a four or five. I never got them to a seven or an eight or a nine. It was a miserable experience. It took me psychologically. How did that impact you? Well, now that I'm learning, you know, one of the things I, I, I do in psychology, I don't just do cognitive behavioral therapy. I do a lot of mindfulness stuff. And one of the things I've learned from mindfulness is that you know what I did wrong at the time was I tried, you know, tried to talk my way out of that. What happened? I tried to negotiate with myself. I try. I wouldn't just accept it. And with mindfulness, you learn to kind of just accept even those real shitty moments, those losses, and just like feel it, experiencing it, realize you couldn't have done anything different. Not try and change the past. Not try and change how you feel. No, and I think that helps you get over things quicker, those kind of humiliating experiences. But at the time I wasn't doing any of that. So it bothered me for a while. I remember just walking through school, hoping I wouldn't see the principal. She didn't give me a hard time. She didn't say anything about it, but it was, it was humiliating. And you know, it's one of the, your boss is probably up there with the people you don't want to bomb in front of, right? Cause then they're like, keep your day job. Actually don't, we don't want you here either. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. That's, that's not a good situation to be in. So people come to you, couples come to you, professionals come to you, kids come to you when they have problems, they want to talk things out. Where do you go when you have issues? Do you go to therapy? How does that work? I don't go to Eric, obviously, because, you know, that would be futile. Although, you know, I have to say about Eric, he doesn't listen as much in in real life, but on podcasts and as a host, he really is good. Yeah, it's not bad. This is how I have to get him to make any decision for our podcast. So we have to do a podcast about podcasts. Exactly. I, th- I think when I need to come to Eric for a serious topic, I'll be like, let's record this. I am, have had therapists. I, I've gone to therapy for numerous times in my life. I did go to psychoanalysis where I would lay down and, and the woman, she was like 85 years old on the Upper East Side. She would interpret my dreams and all that kind of stuff. I've been to all types of therapy. So I have, you know, I speak to friends and family like everyone else, you know. And, and now that I am trained... I am better at kind of addressing my own issues as they come up. So like with mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy, some of those things, I can actually use it on myself. I don't, I think 
people should have a therapist and being your own therapist, even if you are a trained therapist, isn't the best. But on a day-to-day basis, it is helpful to have that training because I can apply some of those things. What would you say, Mark, is the hardest part of your job? Because I would assume that when you have like a heavy day where you're hearing about a lot of stuff and people you can tell need your help, but it's, it, mu- it must be hard to not take that stuff home with you, even though you are, you know, working from home. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're, you, you nailed it. I, like the hardest part is the, the real heavy, more serious cases. So when you have someone who's suicidal or you have someone who's, you know, got real serious issues where, you know, it's not just garden variety sadness or, you know, social anxiety when it's like major depression, suicidality, you know, all of these things that are real serious that I can find myself ruminating on and thinking about during the week and worrying about and worrying about number one, am I doing everything possible for that person? Am am I acting in the most effective evidence-based way to support them? And, you know, you can't always be hundred percent sure of that. My private practice is only a year old. So I've, I've only started doing this pretty recently, the private counseling. So yeah, I think I don't take home the problems of my clients when those problems are standard or things like, you know, that we all kind of go through, but when it's the more serious stuff, it can be, it can weigh on me for sure. And I think that's the main reason why I worry, am I doing everything right? And am I doing everything I can? Do you feel the same way about our friendship? Like, are you constantly asking yourself, like, am I, am I being as good of a friend to him as I possibly can? Am I, am I giving him money when he needs it? I have not, I have not worried about, uh, about being, being a good friend to you. Because uh, I know you have Marcus there, and um, I'm so happy that you guys found each other. And Marcus took off some of the. And Marcus, when I come back to the city in in the fall, you can totally continue that. You know, we, or we could we could we could we, we we could split the duties if you want. Yeah, I mean, well, we'll have to like line up our schedules like we did last year, and we'll just figure it out. Okay, I appreciate that. Mark, any last minute words? People who want might want to go into this field, how how would they get started? It really worked out well for me because I I started as a teacher, and then I got my master's in school psychology and became a school psychologist. Um, So if you want to be a school psychologist, the master's route to school psychology is pretty straightforward. It's a couple years of coursework, one year of internship, you can become a school psychologist. It's a very stable job. All the great benefits that come along with working for schools without, you know, having to handle 25, 30 kids at one time in a classroom. You know, it's, it's a pretty cool, it's a pretty good career, pretty stable career. Private practice, you know, if, if that's your goal, it's, it's a lot less stable, right? Like I have clients, you know, I had one guy, I saw him once and he's like, listen, it's just not the right time for me to be in therapy right now, or I'll see somebody six times and, and we'll get to the root of their issue and they're okay. They don't need to continue. So, you know, private practice, people certainly have very have thriving private practices where they do very well. But if you're looking for stability, and you're looking for like a stable job with great benefits, the school psychology route is great. If you really want to do a private practice, you got to go on and get your doctorate. And then, you know, if, if you want stability, then you could, you could also join a private practice that already exists and work for someone else. But if you're going to build your own private practice, it takes some time. Private practice was all I have. You know, there'd be some weeks where I do really well and some weeks where, you know, not as well or some months where I'm doing not as well. So it's less stable. You know, it's more like comedy where 
you know, you get booked, you get, you get like a, you know, you're getting booked at this club a lot and then all of a sudden disappears. Mark Gerber, thank you so much for your time. This was, I learned a lot about psychology. Thank you so much for your time. And this was great. Eric, did you learn anything, Eric? I actually didn't, I haven't listened to about it to him about anything he does except for comedy. So this is really actually helpful. No, no. Well, he, he listened to me about comedy, but only when I was giving him direct feedback on his jokes. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> then he of listened course. really, really closely. <laughs> Sounds like you know Eric pretty well. No, I, I give Eric a lot of a lot of crap, but he's uh, he's a, he is, he's been he's been a good. He listens to those kind of things, and you wouldn't know it, you know. But then sometimes he'll come back and be like, he'll surprise you, like, wow, you really were paying attention. You really weren't just waiting for your turn to ask about your joke. <laughs> thanks, Mark. Well, thanks again, Mark. I hope to see you uh, when when comedy clubs open up, and maybe um, I will book a session with you. Marcus, what'd you learn? I learned that you can drop out of high school and still become a doctor. What did you learn, Eric? Uh, nothing that I already didn't know from being his friend for 10 years. But I'm glad you learned a lot. I learned a lot. My name is Marcus Monroe. And I'm Eric Newman. Please find us on our socials, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, 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 you don't stop. Uh, this has been Marcus and Eric Learn Stuff from Smarter, Smarter People. One dream. One wish, one piece of mind. A podcast hosted by Nico White about One Piece by Acherio Oda on Paper House Network. We'll see you every Monday.